Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our fifth episode on Ale Saga. That's right. How we uh, how we doing with Ale Saga so far, John? <laughs> we we halfway through yet? Because I, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, around episode five of Njal Saga was more or less halfway through that saga. Mm-hmm. And that series ended up being something like 11 episodes plus judgments. Right. Depends on how you define halfway. I'm not going to be too picky about this. I'm going to settle with a point that is roughly equidistant from the beginning uh, and the end of the saga. Yes, I know what halfway means. Halfway. But how do you want to measure? We could go by chapter number or by page count. Uh, if we're going by page count, then we're not going to make it to the halfway point until the next episode or maybe even the one after that. If we're going uh-huh. by chapter number, well, Ale Saga has some pretty long chapters going forward. And all the short chapters are behind us. So we'll finish this episode with chapter 46, which is just slightly over the halfway point for a saga with 90 chapters. So we are halfway through Ale Saga, but not really. Right. On both counts. Yes. <laughs> well, that's a relief, I guess. Uh, and how many episodes do you anticipate this being in the end? Uh, 13 or 14, by my guess, which is ridiculous. Ah, so maybe by Christmas we'll be done? Oh, we'll, we'll be done before Christmas. I'm aiming for Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Famous last words. Uh, but uh, we <laughs> I'm are aiming for Oktoberfest. Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yes. Uh, uh, but uh, we did finish up the first part of the saga in episode 29C, and then we made our way into the Icelandic section in 29D. So Right, and finally got to meet A.L. Scott Grimson. Yeah, and he makes quite a first impression, doesn't he? Uh-huh. And I, I think we, we really should talk about Young Ale some more before we start this episode, if you want to. I mean, we can do that, sure. But uh, we should probably remind our listeners about what happened last time. Okay, good idea. But before we do, I want to apologize if the sound quality on these reviews sometimes isn't very good. I have been experimenting with capturing that kind of tinny newsreel sound. And <laughs> while the experiments may be loud and clear in my headphones while I'm editing, I have heard that uh, it doesn't work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, when we convert it to MP3, I guess something changes there for I some see. people. Um, but I, I'll quit mucking about and I'll privilege clarity over period accuracy from now on. I think we should strive for both, but fair enough. All right. But uh, if we're going to strive for both, I need you to really sell that voice, John. Well, I'd never give anything but my best. Finger is in ear. All right, let's go. Last time on Ale Saga. After thumbing their noses at King Harald of Norway, Scott Lagrim Feldersen and his wife Bera arrived in Iceland, ready to make a fresh start in an unknown land. Scott Lagrim turned a dab hand to the running of his farm and surrounded himself with friends to make Iceland a little cozier. Secure in their new home, Scott Lagrim and Bera decide to get in the family way. The happy couple play their hand at baby making and draw two pair. Jack's named Thorolf and Ale and a couple of queens, Saun and Thorin. Thorolf is the spitting image of his handsome but ill-fated uncle, Thorolf, while Ale draws the genetic short straw and proves to be a chip off his ugly, bald, rage-prone father's block. Meanwhile, are those wedding bells I hear? Bjorn Brynjolfsson, the noted Viking raider, has dropped by Papa Scotlagrim's farm at Borg for a visit, bringing in tow his new wife, Thora of the Embroidered Hand. Young Thorolf and Bjorn become fast friends, but it turns out the newlyweds are keeping a little secret. Yes, after eloping, Bjorn and Thora are on the run from Thora's brother, Thorir the Hersir, and the Hersir's friend, King Harald Fairhair himself. 
Now, thanks to King Harold, Bjorn's got a bounty on his head. But eventually, Thorolf manages to hash out a peaceful solution to the situation. Meanwhile, we quickly learn that young Ale's sour apple didn't fall far from his father's gnarled tree. At three, the lad crashes a party at his grandfather's house. At six, he's already racked up his first kill, borrowing an axe to give the old choppy chop to a rival in a neighborhood ball game. When Ale is twelve, he and his father allow a wrestling match to get out of hand, resulting in the deaths of Ale's best friend and nanny, and then Scott the Grimm's foreman. And all that winter, at the family farm, the cold weather outside is no match for the chilly atmosphere between father and son. Months pass without a word exchanged between the two. Will the spring thaw bring a warming of family relations? How long will Ale's mother put up with these tit-for-tat killings? And what's Thorolf been playing at while his nearest and dearest give one another the frosty eyebrows? Hmm. You know, Andy, I seem to recall you worrying during our preparations for that episode that nothing happened. Ah, what can I say? I underestimated our ability to make mountains out of molehills. <laughs> uh, but we really took those few chapters and stretched them to their limit. But in the best possible way. Of course, always in the best possible way. Or almost always, I think. We, we have had our fair share of strikeouts. <laughs> as long as we uh, maintain a good on-base percentage, I'm happy. Uh, well, let's uh, if we're talking baseball, let's shoot for a high OPS, and then I'll be happy. All right, just keep us above the Mendoza line. Have we gotten obscure right, enough? Have we gotten obscure enough yet? <laughs> uh, so you want to talk about our first encounter with Ale? Uh, yeah. He managed to cause quite a bit of drama in the chapters that we covered. Just a couple of chapters. He defies his father, recites poetry, receives rewards for that poetry, get involved in petty disputes, and kills several innocent men. So, uh, what do you have in mind? <laughs> of all of that? No. I, I just thought we should draw our listeners' attention to some of the writer's craft and maybe check in with some scholarly discussions of Ale's first appearance in the saga. Okay, we can do that, but let's keep it brief. All right. Uh, you know how that goes. <laughs> I will... Uh, okay, in, a, in an attempt to do that, I'll try to provide quick observations and then you feel free to jump in and comment, but then I might also comment on that. And you, you know how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it. All right. So first up is Russell Poole, who wrote the introduction to the 2015 collection of essays, Ale, the Viking Poet, New Approaches to Ale Saga. Mm -hmm. So Poole observes that this episode of Ale's childhood, quote, aptly foreshadows the adult Ale's bravura as a poet and a socially and geographically mobile poet at that. Well, it's true. You don't have to be a careful reader to notice that the childhood Ale is uh, quite similar to the adult Ale. He defies authority, reacts to small slights with aggression and even violence. He's always ready with a smart-ass remark or a clever poem. I mean, he really doesn't change a lot with age. Right. But but this kind of introduction isn't unusual in the sagas. Uh, characters are typically introduced by the author with a clear and direct statement of the character type, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is meant to help us distinguish the good guys from the bad guys. Sure. Remember uh, Gunnar of Hutherendi's introduction is given a whole chapter in Yal Saga, right? Yeah. He's described in a string of superlatives about his prowess and agility. Uh, hang on. Let me see if I can grab that. He could deal blows so swiftly that it seemed like three swords flashed through the air at the same time. He had no equal in shooting with the bow and never missed his mark. He swam like a seal, could run faster than a speeding bullet, leap hmm. tall buildings in a single bound. No, I, I, I'm not sure if that last bit is in there, but yes, yes, that's the basic idea. You're supposed to like Gunnar from the start. Right, and I think saga authors do the same thing for antagonists. 
Absolutely, you're right. Re- remember when we met uh, Thorir, for example? <laughs> that was a blast from the past, yes. Yeah, yeah. well, he's been on my mind recently for some reason. Maybe because uh, Blundkettle uh, shows up in mm-hmm. uh, in this saga, that's probably why. But uh, Thorir's introduction is much shorter, but it clearly establishes him as an unpopular and unlikable figure. Yeah, I believe the, the saga says something like, there were few men in the district hated more than Thorir." Right, and the saga bears that out. Thoroughly. Uh, he's completely unlikable. Yeah. All of this is, I think, pretty obvious to the average reader. I, I imagine you're building towards something more than this. Yeah. Or, or maybe a question rather than a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, something for our listeners to consider going forward. If Ale is established from the very beginning as an obstinate, violent, and transgressive character, are we really meant to like him by the end? Um. Why do I suddenly feel like I'm back in class? Uh, yeah. this, is, this is a question that always comes up when you're teaching this to students. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's worth asking, and and uh, the more you look through the the scholarship on this, this is a, a question that a lot of people have. Yeah. Um, Armand Jakobsen also got an essay in the uh, New Approaches to Ale Saga collection. It's called Thorolf's Choice: mm-hmm. Family and Goodness in Ale Saga, Chapter Forty. Oh, it's very appropriate because it's the chapter that we've split between the previous episode and this one. Exactly. Now, listen to this, and I think you're going to like Jakobsen's first line. Hit me. So, referring to Ale and Scott Legrim's feud, which we covered last time, he mm. writes, This may well be the unhappiest home in Iceland. Right. No, it's, I mean, it's almost an understatement. And this was kind of my cue. I think we may have even addressed this last time. And I hope we credited really? Armand last time. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's where it comes from. Um, so the, the image that I have in my head with it, I mean, that scene just resonates for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see Ale and Scott the Grim sitting across the table from one another, silent, no expression, arms folded. And on the floor in the background is the body of Scott yeah. the Grim's poor foreman, <laughs> recently dead at Ale's hands. Um, if any artist is out there listening and has time on his hands, uh, Matt Smith or any of the others, please draw that scene. Um, we yeah. just need to see it. Yeah, that would be awesome. Actually, there are so many great scenes in the saga that I want to see this whole thing illustrated more vividly. Um, oh, yeah. If anybody's inspired to do so, please share your work with us. Uh, it'd be great to put together a gallery of uh, Ale Saga scenes on the webpage somewhere. Oh, that would be so cool. Yes, please. If you if you could scrounge up the free time to be sketching out <laughs> cool Ale Saga drawings, uh, we would love to see them. And we would right. definitely uh, put up a gallery. Uh, sorry, back to back to Jacobson. Right, so we were talking about Ail's character. So Jacobson's whole article is built around the comparison of the altruistic Thorolf and his more troublesome, egotistical, aggressive brother Ail. And when discussing the first appearance of Ail, he says, It is shown from the outset that Ail is not lovable. That's <laughs> fairly conclusive, Aww. right? And in his conclusion, after developing all of this, these complex relationships in Ail's family and the accompanying emotional baggage that goes with that, he says, Thorolf is kind, generous, and caring. Well, Ale lacks all of these qualities. I mean, it's fair. These aren't words I would use to describe Ale. It's true. Yeah, but here's the brilliant part of Jakobsen's reading of Ale. He goes on to say that Ale, even though he looks like his father, ends up imitating his uncle Thorolf in amassing wealth and challenging kings. The younger Thorolf, however, is a good and true brother to Ale, just as Scott the Grim was a loyal and devoted son to his father. Yeah, I, I think that seeing how Ail and Thorolf kind of mix the influences of their ancestors yeah. is one of the really interesting parts of the middle of this saga. Absolutely. Uh, but I, and I'd add here where that uh, while Scott Grimm maintained that distance from Thorolf's adventures, he proved afterward uh, just how fiercely loyal he was to Thorolf as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, so one of the things that we're going to be talking about as this episode progresses is how these scenes parallel much of what we've already seen. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but not exactly. They're not exact parallels. Um, so just as these brothers are not exact copies of their father and their uncle, um, these scenes are not exact copies of what we saw before. There's there's nuance. There's something changing, yeah. something, something a little bit different um, yeah. that we need to pay attention to. Um, there's obviously a lot more that we could say about all of this, but we should table it for the time being. Uh, we definitely need to revisit Ale's character when we get to the judgments, when mm-hmm. we get to Thingmen. Like, do you want Ale as a Thingman? Why would you want him or why wouldn't you? Um, but for now, I'm going to just reiterate that question that I asked at the start. Are we meant to like Ale's character and how are we meant to feel about him? I, You know what? I don't want to answer that. I don't want to prejudice the audience at this point. Uh, we'll be following Ale from his youthful adventures, which we're diving into here all the way through to his feeble old age. Uh, And I'd be curious to hear if our listeners' impression of him changes from beginning to end, uh, or do they develop an opinion around now and then have that opinion of him throughout the saga? Yeah, excellent. See, that was fun. Nice little... Yeah, for us, maybe. A pre-digression. We we might want to sound an alarm to wake up anyone who may have dozed off, or uh, for those still frozen in their English class flashbacks. (laughs) Well, what better way to bring them back online than with a quick preview of what's to come in this episode? Hit the button. In this episode, we follow Ail's brother, Thorolf Scott the Grimson, as he travels to Norway with his newfound friend, Bjorn Brynjelsen. Like so many promising young Icelanders, Thorolf is keen to see the world and make a name for himself outside of his rather isolated community back home. While visiting Björn's father-in-law, the powerful Thorir the Hersir, Thorolf runs into the young Norwegian prince and future king, Eric Bloodaxe, son of the rapidly aging Harold Fairhair. After gifting the impressionable young prince a handsome Viking warship, Thorolf and Eric become close friends and soon they're off raiding around the northern sea world together. While traveling through Finnmark, Prince Eric finds himself a beautiful bride and future queen in the formidable Gunhild Olsersdotter. With his reputation in Norway at its peak, Thorolf finally decides to return home to Iceland. In a gesture of goodwill towards Thorolf's family, Eric sends an elaborately decorated axe as a gift to Skathegrim, King Harold's old enemy. How will Skathegrim receive this gesture of friendship from the newly minted Norwegian king? Why does Thorolf want to take Asgard with him back to Norway? And what happens when a teenage ale doesn't get his way? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale Saga, chapters 36 to 40. Are we really only doing five chapters? Well, there's a lot of fun stuff in this episode. Plenty to discuss. I hope you have a lot of beers in that fridge, Andy, because this could take a while. I am fully stocked and ready to go. Part 16, Thorolf 2.0. So the first part of our story concerns the travels of Thorolf 2.0, as you called him, and his new BFF, mm-hmm. Bjorn Brunjolfsson. Yeah, Skalligrim had sent messengers to his foster brother, Thor the Herser, hoping to arrange a settlement for Bjorn's abduction of, of Thora, Thora's sister. Everything worked out nicely, and Bjorn was free to return to Norway without the threat of reprisal from Thorir. So, Bjorn pick, packs up his ship, heads back to Norway with the lovely Thora by his side. And a very eager Thorolf Scott Grimson. That's right. Uh, Scott Grim set him up with all the equipment he'd need and gave him his blessing to travel with Bjorn. Hey, John, you uh, you ever get that feeling you forgot something important just after you finish rowing out of the bay? Oh, all the time. It's a daily occurrence. 
Ugh. And it is such a pain to turn the ship around and row all the way back. It is. Even if it's to pick up Asgard, the young daughter you've left behind at Scotland's farm. Well, why don't we just say that we left her there to be fostered then? Wouldn't that save us yeah, time? Yeah, sure. That's the ticket. Hmm. Uh, Scott Ligram will think it's a sign of respect, right? <laughs> He's so busy working, I doubt he'll even notice. Yeah, no, that's not. this is not exactly what happened. Uh, no. As we explained last time, Scott Ligram's wife, Bera, asked if she could foster Asgard, the daughter of Bjorn and Thora, and they mm-hmm. agreed. That's right. Uh, w- they probably got that first taste. I'm thinking about this as, a you know, having had three children. They get that first taste of uh, parenthood, and then and then they jump at the chance to foster her out, right? We can go to Norway by ourselves. Uh, plus, they've been living for a year at Scotlandgrim's house with a with a toddler ale. Now, imagine that. Do they really want children? Uh, probably not. Uh, well, so that's where we left things. Uh, chapter thirty six right. then picks up back in Norway after Bjorn has already visited Thor the Herser, his new brother in law, and finalized their settlement. Uh, and that finally legitimizes the marriage between Bjorn and Thora. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it'll be an important detail later in the saga. So mm-hmm. it's worth reiterating. It's also worth recalling the fact that this is all eerily similar to the story of Björgolf and Hildred from the first mm-hmm. part of the saga. Now, that marriage never was legitimized, which caused significant problems for Herrick and Frederick Hildredison. Uh Well, was it not legitimized? I mean, we, we saw at the time that it was actually... Uh, approved by the bride's father, even though that bride's father was coerced. Uh, I think that that's what delegitimizes it, who's coerced into saying yes. Well, I mean, if you're going to get fussy about terminology. Uh, I think uh, that's a good one to be fussy about. <laughs> no, but that, I mean, that the questionable nature of that marriage causes problems all the way down the line. Yeah. Eventually, because of a series of inheritances causing trouble for Thorolf Kvildofsson, uh, or right. Thorolf 1.0, I suppose. Exactly. So at this point in the story, King Harold Fairhair is an old man. Uh, His sons are fully grown by now, but his favorite son, Eric, is still quite young. Now, for those of you who know your Norwegian history, you already know that Eric is going to be selected by his father as the successor to the throne, despite the fact that Eric had already killed his elder brother, Bjorn the Champion, in a petty dispute over who would deliver taxes from the Westfjord to their father. Uh, And then he burned another brother, Ronvald, in his hall. Yeah, now, Eric Eric is known by the nickname Blodox, uh, which means blood axe or bloody axe. Uh, it's quite possible he earned the nickname for killing Bjorn. It's equally possible the name was earned on the battlefield or in raids, or that he just paid a bunch of guys to start calling him that. Yeah. Uh, we don't really know. Well, I mean, Eric is famous for killing brothers. He ambushes mm-hmm. poor Bjorn. He burns Ronvald in his hall with 80 sorcerers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after he becomes king, he kills two more brothers in, in battle. Uh, that's Olaf and Sigroth. Uh, so I'm going to guess he maybe earned the nickname that way. It's certainly possible. I just want to reiterate for people who are listening to this that the Bjorn we're talking about is Eric's brother, Bjorn Haraldson, not Bjorn Brynjolfsson, the one who we've just been talking about. That's correct. Uh, so we don't have any contemporary sources that refer to Eric as Eric Bloodaxe, right? Um, our first reference to the nickname is somewhere in the 12th century. Right? The, the Astoria Norwegia uses the term Blodex uh, and the Latin Sanguinea Securis to describe him. Ah, Sanguinea Securis. Sounds a lot fancier than Bloodaxe, to be honest, mm-hmm. even though I know it means the same thing. I mean, that's Latin for you, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> we've been, we, as, as, uh, Westerners, as English speaking Westerners, we've been conditioned. Centuries of indoctrination have, have gone into making us think of Latinate words as being sophisticated. Mm, exactly. Uh, oh, I should add that, uh, Ale uses the nickname in one of his poems later in the saga. Uh, but we don't know if that poem dates to Ale's time or if it's an invention of the 13th century saga author. Fair enough. So these are all good options, but, uh, Back to the story, which we really haven't even started yet somehow. What else is new? Uh, so Eric Bloodaxe is a young man in Chapter 36, and he's being fostered by Thorder the Hairser, the very guy that Thorolf and Bjorn are on their way to visit after raiding in the Baltic all summer. And they've had a very successful trip. Uh, they arrive in Fjordana aboard a warship that they had seized while on their Viking expedition. It's described as being richly painted above the plumb line and of exceptional quality. Yeah, they anchor the ship and head up to Thorir's farm, but the ship has caught the eye of young Eric Bloodaxe. Uh-huh. One day, they come down to the ship from the farm, and they see Eric repeatedly boarding the ship, and then going back on the land to admire the ship from there, and then boarding the ship again, and then coming back mm-hmm. on land. He clearly likes this ship. Yeah, and he's got the acquisitive eye of a rich kid who gets bought a lot of toys. Exactly. Uh, now, Bjorn immediately recognizes the situation. And seeing an opportunity, he advises Thorolf to give the ship to Eric as a gift. I know it'll be a great boon to us if Eric is our spokesman. I have heard the king is ill-disposed toward you on account of your father. Which is quite true. Remember, Scott the Grim had killed some of Harold's best men, the Travel Brothers. And not to mention the grudge he's holding against them for Kvaldo's refusal to submit. And then Thorolf's alleged attempt to usurp his power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd say King Harold isn't going to be too keen on having Scott Legrim's son Thorolf around. Well, Bjorn's plan works brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Eric eagerly accepts the ship, saying, You will not think the pledge of my friendship much of a reward for it, but that is likely to be worth more the longer I live. Uh, so Thorolf 2.0 now has the future king of Norway on his side. That's well right. done. A young, that, that's the voice of a young future king. Mind. There you go. It will there change as he gets older. Right. Right. Yeah, so I guess Thorolf never really paid attention to his family history. Because things didn't turn out so well for the first Thorolf after he gave King Harold a similarly beautiful ship as a gift. Yeah, but the previous Thorolf didn't befriend the king before his voice changed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this Thorolf is thinking about the potential danger he's in, which is why he and Bjorn approach Thor the Hersir about arranging a meeting with the king to help smooth things over. So Thorir, now in the position of Olvir Hump, reluctantly agrees to act as their liaison. He also insists that Eric, the king's son, who is now so fond of Thorolf, come with them. Yeah, it's smart, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, when Harold learns of Thorolf Scotland arrival, his mood turns foul. Thorir tries to speak on his behalf, asking Harold not to hold the son accountable for the father's deeds, but to no avail. And Harold says, All of them are so overbearing... They never know when to stop. They pay no heed to whom it is they are dealing with. Eric also tries to defend Thorolf, uh, explaining that the fine warship in the harbor was a gift from (laughs) 2.0. 2.0. No, I'm not sure that's a good idea, though. I'm willing to bet that King Harold does remember the humiliating feast that ended with the other Thorolf giving him that warship to stop all that pouting that he was doing. True, but Eric also points out that he's already given his word and bond of friendship to Thorolf. If Harold contradicts that, it would undercut Eric's authority in the kingdom. Yeah, but Harold isn't deeply moved by that. He just says, I don't want him to come see me. You may hold him as dear as you wish, Eric, or any of his kinsmen. 
But either they will treat you more gently than they have me, or you will regret this favor you ask, especially if you allow them to remain with you for any length of time. He's become quite a petulant old man, hasn't he? Well, I mean, he, the the subject of the Kveldovsons and Scott uh mm. really irks him, doesn't it? That's <laughs> fair. So with that, the meeting ends. Not quite as they had hoped it would go. Right. Eric and Thorir return to Fjordana and send messages to Thorolf, warning him that he might do best to keep distance from King Harald. Yeah, fortunately for Thorolf, King Harald soon shuffles off this mortal coil and the kingdom falls to Eric. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out at this point that this part of Norwegian history doesn't exactly match what we find in the Heimskringla or in other Norwegian sources. Um, For one, this saga tells us that Eric is still quite young and that his brothers are already grown. Yeah, although to be fair, Harold had a lot of sons by a lot of different women. Yeah, that's true. Uh, The author is intentionally skipping over a bunch of those for the sake of being concise. Concise? What yes. is this word? I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> I don't recall offhand. But uh, does the Heimskringla tell us the order of the sons? I'd have to check on that. Well, I, I did look at, yeah, kind of. The Heimskringla groups them by their mothers. And mm-hmm. Eric is the firstborn from Harold's second wife, I believe. Okay. So anyway, what the saga does leave out is that Harold transferred the kingship of all, all Norway to Eric well, about three years before he died, at mm-hmm. least three years before he died. Right. Uh, and according to the Heimskringla, Harold lived into his 80s. Yeah, good for him. That's why he's starting to sound so well, weak, though. Uh, so with Harold dead and Eric on the throne, things are looking up for Thorolf in Norway. Yeah. Uh, one spring, Eric begins preparations for an important military expedition into Permia. In, uh, it's an area in uh, northern Russia. It's near the White Sea. Yeah, the footnote in the Penguin edition describes it as a region that is prized for its furs and walrus ivory. Um, It also describes it as a place beyond the boundaries of the civilized world. That's where I keep my furs and walrus ivory. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is another interesting parallel to the first Thorolf, where we spent significant time on these expeditions into Finnmark, which is another region beyond the boundaries of the civilized world. Yeah, but we won't be spending quite so much time in Permia or in Finnmark here. No, but the parallel is interesting. Uh, So Eric is looking for a few good men to accompany him on the journey, And who better to serve as standard bearer than the strong, exceedingly strong, and the very capable Thorolf Skotlagrimson? Of course. One Thorolf is much like the other, they say. Do do they say that? Uh, No, of course not. Or maybe they do. I don't really know. (laughs) Uh, But in this case, Thorolf is taking up the exact position for his newly crowned king that his uncle Thorolf held for King Harald. Yeah, the trip is a massive success. So much so that the saga author notes that poems were later written about it. Um, do, do you, uh, by, by any chance, have any idea what poems they're referring to? Because they're definitely not in the Hamescreen label. They do mention the battle, but they don't write, mention any poems. Um, off the top of my head, no. I think there is something. Mm-hmm. But maybe one of our listeners uh, knows a bit more than we do. They seem to know an awful lot. Yes, they do. <laughs> it's coming very useful. Yes. They, they, it's, it's shocking, all the things that people know. Um, but I, we're really glad when they share it with us because uh, it helps us learn stuff, too. Yeah, and we're going to see some of that knowledge a bit later at the end of the episode when we crack open the old listener mailbag. But for now, we'll wrap up this section with one final note. In addition to killing plenty of foreigners and taking all of their valuables, Eric also managed to find himself a bride. Her name is Gunhild. She claims to be the daughter of Ozur Snout. Oh, boy. I feel like uh, when you introduce Gunhild, there needs to be like a thunderclap or something. (sighs) Yeah. The saga tells us that she was outstandingly attractive and wise. 
and mm-hmm. well-versed in the magical arts. Yeah, this is Gunhild, the mother of kings, yeah. and she'll be playing a significant role in the saga going forward. We don't get a lot about her background here. Uh, there's a lot more detail in the Heimskringla. Uh, chapter, what, 32? Yeah. 33 uh, tells us all about Eric's expedition, which began when he was only 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harold was still alive. Uh, so we're getting a slightly different version of events here. Although it does make sense with uh, that, that scene with uh, Eric and the warship a little bit uh, earlier that you have a 12-year-old kind of eyeballing right, it. Really excited. Right. Uh, now, Eric has been given five warships by his father for a long expedition. He spends four years raiding in the Baltic and then around Denmark and then Frisland and Saxland. And after that, he goes to Scotland and then Wales then Ireland and France. He's a regular Ragnar for another Wolf four Wolf years. He's, he gets around. Yeah. Finally, he goes to Finnmark and Permia. So that's just amazing. So let, let's just <laughs> imagine for a second that there's a grain of truth here. Let's imagine that he did even a quarter of what's described. Uh-huh. And somehow he managed to actively engage in all of those battles, likely near the front as a war leader, maybe. And he still survives. Well, I mean, he's either very talented or very lucky, or uh, he's got narrative on his side. Ah, I see. <laughs> or maybe all three. That's true. Um, anyway, it's on, a, it's on the return to Finnmark that he encounters this mysterious woman, Gunild. Yeah, and this story is actually worth sharing. So trust me, the digression is worth it. So it says, when they returned to Finnmark, his men found in a hut a woman so beautiful that they had never seen the like of her. And she gave her name as Gunhild. And said that her father dwelled in Halogaland and that his name was Ozur Toti. I have dwelt here, she said, to learn sorcery from two Finns who are the wisest here in Finnmark. Just now they are gone on hunt. Both want to marry me, and both are so clever that they can follow a track like dogs, both on open ground and on hard frozen snow. They run so well on skis that nothing can escape them, whether humans or animals. And whatever they shoot at, they hit. In this way they have killed all men who have approached here. And if they become enraged, the ground turns about as they look at it, and any living thing falls down dead. Now you must not encounter them, if you value your lives, unless I hide you here in the hut, and then we shall try if we can kill them. They all agree to this, and she hides them. She then took a linen sack which they thought contained ashes, and she put her hand in it and strewed the contents about the hut, both outside and inside. And shortly afterwards, the Finns returned home. They asked who had been there, and she said no one had been there. The Finns thought it strange that they had followed tracks right to the hut, but then did not find them. So they kindled a fire and prepared their food, and when they had eaten their fill, Gunhild made up her bed. But the last three nights had passed in this wise that Gunhild slept, but the others had kept awake with mutual jealousy. And then she said, Come here now, and each of you lie on his side of me. They were glad to do so, and she put an arm around the neck of both. And soon they fell asleep, but she roused them. Then they soon fell asleep again, and so soundly that she was scarcely able to wake them. They fell asleep again, and now she was not able to wake them by any means. She even set them up, but they kept on sleeping. And then she took two large bags and placed them over their heads, tying them fast under their arms. And then she made a sign to the king's men, and they leapt forward and killed them, then dragged them out of the hut. (laughs) Jeez. During the night, there came such a tremendous thunderstorm that they could not proceed, but in the morning they went to their ship, taking Gunhild along and bringing her to Eric. And Eric and his men sailed south to Hologolan, and there he summoned Ozur Toti and declared that he wanted to marry his daughter, and Ozur assented. So Eric married her and took her along south with him. 
that is Gunild, the wife of King Eric Bloodaxe. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is a formidable opponent to her enemies and, frankly, to her husband. Uh, <laughs> and as we said, she'll play a very significant role in this saga going forward. So keep an eye on her. Part 17, A King's Gift. So one summer after the passage of a rather large and unspecified amount of time, Thorolf was preparing a trading voyage that would take him back to Iceland. Mm-hmm. And in the time, he had become quite wealthy and well-respected since he had left so long, long ago. Well, I mean, being the king's standard bearer can be quite lucrative, as long as things are going well and as long as you know how to behave yourself. Well, so are you implying that uh, the original Thorolf wasn't a good standard bearer? Not at all. I, 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 well, <laughs> I do think this Thorolf was a little more savvy at handling his lord than his uncle was. Well, to be fair, we don't get to see much of their relationship at all. Uh, We just know that they get along well and they respect each other greatly. That's about it. Which, to be fair, is more than we can say for Thorolf 1.0 and Harold. Well, to be fair, you're right. Yeah, Things are going so well, in fact, that Eric makes a a kind gesture in an effort to bury the hatchet with Thorolf's family. Ah, bury the hatchet. I get it. You like that? I'm not going to say I like it. I just get it. But go on. You've set it up now. Go ahead and finish. (laughs) Well, Eric presents Thorolf with an axe. And not just a run-of-the-mill Bjorn the Raider-style axe for hacking at the bodies of foreigners. No, no. This is an axe worthy of a king's gift. We're told that it was crescent-shaped, large, inlaid with gold. Probably in a decorative pattern of some kind. Uh, The shaft is plated with silver. It's a beautiful work of Norwegian craftsmanship. Yeah, it's a stunning gift and a kind gesture from King Eric, who seems eager to put the past offenses of Scott Grimm and his family behind them. I mean, that is the apparent intention, yes. Yeah. If anyone is curious what such an axe might look like, well, you're just going to have to use your imagination. But the, <laughs> the closest thing we can offer in terms of a similarly styled axe with gold and silver inlays would be the Mammon axe. Uh, it's an axe head in the National Museum of Denmark. Very cool thing. Oh, yeah. I think that's the one I was thinking about. Uh, it's a 10th century axe head with an elaborate silver inlay. It's got a, uh, what, a tree motif on one side and a bird on the other. That's right, yeah. Um, it's these uh, images uh, from which the Mammon style of Viking art takes its name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's really, like I said, a beautiful axe head. And if you haven't seen it, please do check it out. And I'll, I'll just post a few pictures of the axe head in the show notes for our listeners uh, so they can get a sense of what it looks like. Uh, and mm-hmm. maybe post it on social media in the next day or so. Oh, that's a good idea. It's mm-hmm. pretty. Yeah, our, our friend Adam, who's uh, eBlueAxe on Twitter, uh, he could probably provide a detailed explanation of the process for creating a piece such as this. <laughs> yes, he could. Uh, But I can handle the basics, I think. So the gold and the silver inlays are created by carving two grooves into the iron face of the axe, making a sort of like W shape where the the outer tips of the W kind of bent inward. Um, So then the precious metal wire is laid into the groove and hammered into place. So the wire is flattened and forced into the W shape of the groove, which helps keep the the, whole, the gold or the silver from slipping out. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty involved process, especially if the decorative pattern is as elaborate as the one in the, the Mammon axe head. So in other words, um, to get back to our story, this is a very expensive gift that King Eric is offering Scott Legrim. Oh, absolutely. It's very expensive. Again, a very lovely gesture from King Eric. So Thorolf sails to Iceland and goes straight to his father's house, where he presents this lavish gift as a gesture of friendship from the new king of Norway. Yes, and I'm sure that Scott Grimm is deeply moved by this gesture. 
Yeah, it's hard to say. I'm going to go with no. He holds it up. He looks it over for several minutes without speaking. And then he hangs it up over his bed. See, maybe he does like the gift. That's a nice spot. Remember, well, you know, Scott Grimm is a blacksmith himself. Perhaps he appreciates the <laughs> craftsmanship, wants to show it off. No, I think that's exactly the problem. But thank you for playing along. Uh, the saga then skips ahead to autumn. Uh, Scott Grimm has a large number of oxen driven to his farm to be slaughtered. He has two of them tethered up against the wall with their heads together. Oh, no. Oh, yes. No. Uh, he places a large stone slab beneath their necks. And takes the new, th- this axe, now called King's Gift, in hand. See, that's no way to handle an axe like King's Gift, Scott Legrim. What are you doing? Well, no, remember, this is a, he's a blacksmith, right? He's, uh, he's had a look at this axe, and he knows what he thinks of it. Uh, with one blow, he chops off the heads of both of the oxen. Wow. The axe slices through hide, muscle, bone, and cartilage with so much force and precision, in fact, that it goes straight through the oxen's necks and into the stone slab. And this bursts the mounting of the axe completely and shatters the blade. Scott Legrim inspects the edge without saying a word. Then he carries it into the fire room of the house, climbs up on a bench, and sticks the axe among the rafters there. Without cleaning it off, I want to be clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where it stays all winter long. Yeah. So in the spring, Thorolf announces that he'll be traveling back to Norway when summer comes, but... Scott the Grim isn't too happy about this plan, and so he peppers mm-hmm. Thorolf with a variety of old proverbs trying to discourage him. Yeah, uh, I actually noted these. He says things like, mm, it's, it's better to ride a whole wagon home. And uh, the more journeys you make, the more directions they take. Ah, the more journeys so you, you make, mm-hmm. the more directions they take. Very helpful, For- Scott the Grim. I'm Wise sure, words. I'm sure these uh, <laughs> proverbs really hit home with Thorolf. Oh, yeah, no. Young men always respond well to old men spouting proverbs. It's yes. the best way to get through to them, really. Oh, and don't forget, uh, young Ale is probably there in the room just rolling his eyes behind Scott Legrim's back. <laughs> Here he goes again. Uh, now, Scott Legrim doesn't just offer proverbs. He also tells Thorolf that he can have as much wealth as he wants from the farm if he feels the need to show his stature. Yeah, again, I'm not sure that's the best approach. Plus, well, I don't know, Andy. I mean, you know, you always when you're a, when you're a young Viking on the prowl, you always stand a little taller with jingle in your jeans. That's, that's just true. Uh, that's how it goes. But but Thorolf doesn't want the riches of a farmer. He wants the fame and riches of a king's man. <laughs> Both can be quite wealthy, but only one comes with fame and glory. Fame and glory, fame and glory. Uh, sure. <laughs> It's true. I mean, you're absolutely right. <laughs> he was actually dancing while he was saying that. I'll <laughs> oh, prove that. This is an audio medium. Yeah. I think they could hear it. And the fact that you had to crack your knuckles after you did your jazz hands, I think, gives it away. <laughs> Although, uh, Th- Thorolf is not that impressed. It's clear. And he says, I have yeah. some pressing business to attend to in Norway. What's that? His pressing business? Well, he's promised Bjorn that he will bring Asgard, whom Scott Grimm has been fostering oh, right. since Bjorn and Thora left many years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to be hearing about that in, in our next section. Right. So for now, uh, Scott Legrim tells Thorolf that it is ultimately up to him to decide how he wants to proceed. He then offers this grim warning. I have an intuition that if we part now, we will never meet again. Yes. This echoes Kveldolf's last words to Scott Legrim's brother Thorolf back in chapter 20. They even use the same exact words, I think. Um, I haven't compared them, but it's definitely close. 
Uh, yeah, this is this is another moment where the author stitches together two parts of the saga. Yeah, the two generations are being linked by more than their names. Their stories are running roughly parallel, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah, Torfitulinius has a great essay called "The Construction of Ale Saga," which is also in that new approaches to Ale Saga book we mentioned earlier. Um, in it, he explores the structure of the saga in great detail, and Tolinius points out that there are a number of names that repeat in the saga at important moments in the narrative's development. Uh, he says that these repetitions of names serve to actually accentuate the structure of the saga. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still trying to make up my mind about that essay. Um, yeah. He's undeniably onto something. Uh, he makes this point about the saga having this strange underlying structure of figures who reflect one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, at one point in the essay, he talks about all these people named Kettle who show up for brief stretches of the story. Yes. Uh, one of my students, uh, Gabriel Hazeldine, has been working on the structural elements of this saga for a while, and he's convinced of Tolinius' argument. Uh, in this instance, uh, I, what I, we can say, I think, the, the repetition is adding narrative tension here, right? Uh, we know how Thorolf Mark I story turned out, and that's now hanging over 2.0. That's right, yeah. And I'll be coming back to Torvitolinius' discussion of structure when we get to the saga brief on Snorri Sturluson, uh, because he's got some interesting thoughts on how the structure of Ale Saga may actually intersect with that of skaldic poetry. And it's, it's, huh. that's the part of the argument yeah. that I think is quite interesting. Um, but, but let's move forward. How does Thorolf respond to Scott the Grimm's dire warning of impending I mean, doom? Pretty much the way the first Thorolf responded. Uh, there's nothing there, right? In both chapters, the father says his piece, and then we're told that the Thorolf goes to his ship and prepares yes. to leave. Yeah, given what happened to Thorolf 1.0, I'm beginning to suspect that Thorolf's promise to return to Iceland and settle down on a farm, uh, it might not happen. Hey, you think? No. Uh, now, b- but before Thorolf is able to set sail, he's approached by his younger brother, Eil. Oh, that can't be good news. No. Uh, this is one year, or most of a year, after Eil and Scotlagrim had their little feud that claimed the lives of Thorgerd Brock and Scotlagrim's foreman. Thorolf had arrived in the summer after that chilly winter in Scotlagrim's house. That must have been such an awkward visit. I mean, no wonder Thorolf's <laughs> eager to leave, right? He's just spend the whole Yeah, well, Ale wants out too. Uh, he asks Thorolf if he can go abroad with him. Now, Andy, if you had just spent eight or nine months living in cramped quarters with Ale, would you want him along? Oh, no. I, I don't think I would even last eight or nine months. I would have snuck out of that house and found another place to live until spring came, or I might have even uh-huh. jumped out on the ice and tried to swim to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> that family's a mess. Well, I okay, we should say that uh, Thorolf 2.0 has a much kinder disposition than you or I. Oh, well, he's just written that way, so <laughs> that's not really fair. But as nice as Thorolf is, he's also reluctant to take a boy like Ale with him. Remember... Thorolf wants to be famous and well-respected among Scandinavian royalty. How is he going to achieve that with a troll-like man-killer like Ale? (laughs) And he's only 13 at this point. You can't have him by your side. Yeah, under normal circumstances, having a younger brother tagging along is a hassle. In this case, for Thorolf, it's going to be a nightmare. Hey, John, you're the oldest brother in your family, right? Yes, I am. And uh, (laughs) I I know whereof I speak here. Any, Having any, your younger siblings dragging along with you can be a, can be a real problem sometimes. <laughs> any particular brother you have in mind there? I, I will never say. <laughs> well, Thorolf initially rejects Ail's request, saying, If your father doesn't feel he can manage you in his house, well, I can't feel confident about taking you abroad with me, because you won't get away with acting there the way you do here. 
your father. Like, they don't have the same father. Yeah, I don't think uh, he considers himself I a mean, part of the family anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it suggests something about Thoral's relationship to the family at this point. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, Thoral's underestimated Ale, who rather coolly replies, In that case, perhaps neither of us will go. Oh, no. See, now, I wonder if Thoralf would have responded differently <laughs> if he had seen Ale casually walk into that dining room a year ago and ruthlessly cut down his father's foreman, who was already seated neatly at the table waiting for his dinner. Oh, I think the answer still would have been no. <laughs> well, I, I hope so. But he may have been a little more careful with how he communicated that no. Because Ale really, really doesn't like it when things don't go his way. Well, at least nobody dies this time. Let's give him that. Yet. Uh, there's a there's a storm that night, and Ale sneaks out when the storm and tide are at their highest. He cuts Thoral's ship loose from its moorings and oh. pushes it out to sea where it drifts out into the fjord. Oh, man. <laughs> See, I, I, the, the thing I want to say here is what an... Uh, but we're a family-friendly podcast. I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> But Thoralf and his men figure out what is happening, but it's already too late to do anything about it. The winds are too heavy for them to catch the ship, and they're forced to turn back. And fortunately, I guess, the ship only drifts deeper Fellas, into the fjord. it's been good to know you. Yeah. What'd you say? I'm, I'm doing the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald over here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, fortunately, the ship only drifts deeper into the fjord and across to the opposite side. It Mm -hmm. could have wrecked entirely or drifted out to sea never to be seen again. So I guess things could be worse. Yeah, no, and you have to remember that this is this is Iceland, where uh, you know anything that washes up on shore belongs to whoever's property. Uh-huh. It is. That, is, that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, you have to be really careful about having your ship wander off on you. Yeah, uh, but no, I mean this is a nasty trick. Right? I mean, you know, it's for a seafaring community to cut somebody's ship loose is pretty low. Yeah, and everybody in the district agrees that this has gone to that this has gone too far now. Now. And my question is, how is that supposed to change Thorolf's mind? Like, all of a sudden, he's going to be like, well, now I want to bring you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't change his mind. It's really more petulance on Ale's part, right? I mean, uh-huh. it's, he, he does behave like a teenager here. Um, the, the two brothers end up fighting, although we're not given any details. It just says that several people intervened and helped the brothers to reconcile. Yeah. At which point, Thorolf does agree to let Ale come with him to Norway. Right. Armand Jakobsen, whose article about Ale and Thorolf we discussed at the start of the podcast, says Thorolf's decision to take Ale with him shed significant light on Thorolf. It's remarkable, he argues. <laughs> on Thorolf. Uh, yes, on Thorolf. It's remarkable, he says, because he's now agreeing to take responsibility for Ale, which is quite surprising given what just happened. Mm. He's got very little to gain from this arrangement and a lot to lose, but Jakobsen sees it as an example of brotherly empathy. Right. So Jacobson is interested in Ale's experience as a child in Scott Ligram's house. Yeah. And he concludes that Ale is trapped in a miserable existence in Iceland with a mother and father who have no interest in him and where there's no outlet for his talents. His talents? Which talents? You mean the, the poetry or the ability to effortlessly kill people? Well... I mean, both? <laughs> you said earlier that uh, Jacobson views Ale as a problematic figure. Right. Um, but he does acknowledge that Ale is a child prodigy if you sort of accept that, you know, being a bloodthirsty Viking is a pro- is something you can be a prodigy I think prodigy it's more of. his, his wordplay and, and awareness of language and all of that. Right. Kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> He's a very astute uh, person. Right. And the problem is that Ale is an astute and, you know, as we said before, that sensitive, poetic side of him is also part of his personality. Right. And he's trapped in a house with a father who remains distant and ignores him. Mm-hmm. 
I think the idea is that Thorolf, who's also a man of talents, uh, although they are very different talents, uh, recognizes how difficult life can be on an Icelandic farm run by Scott Grimm. Yeah, fair enough. Of course, it's entirely possible that he's just forced to bring ale and never really has a choice in the matter. Sure, yeah. We're not told much about how this reconcilement comes about, right? Just that people intervene and eventually Thorolf changes his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but however one chooses to read Thorolf's motivation, this decision will change the course of Thorolf's life significantly, and we're going to start seeing this quite soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, before we do, there's uh, one more bit of business to wrap up here. Uh, just before Thorolf and Ale set sail that summer, Skaldagrim approaches Thorolf to present him with King's Gift. Oh. That that beautiful shining axe Skaldagrim had broken when killing those oxen. Yeah, but it's no longer the beautiful work of art that it had been when it was sent to him as the sign of the king's respect or at least a token of the king's friendship. Yeah, no, it's been sitting uh, in the rafters of the fire room all winter long with that dried blood on it. Now it's uh, rusty and covered in soot. Uh, Scott Legrim hands this abomination to Thorolf and recites the following verse. Many flaws lie in the edge of the fearsome wound biter. Aoun... A feeble tree feller. There is vile treachery in this axe. Hand this blunt crescent back with its sooty shaft. I had no use for it. Such was the gift from the king. Ouch. See, that's really harsh, Scott the Grim. Uh, I guess clearly he wasn't impressed by the king's gift. Is that what I'm supposed to take? I think that's a fair statement. Yes. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot we can say about this. And actually, a lot has been said about this Mm -hmm. in different studies of Ale Saga. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, even our listeners, uh, John, are getting involved in the conversation. Oh? A little while ago, I had exchanged uh, several emails with uh, a listener, Andy Ternay, who wrote a whole paper. Hi, Andy. Oh, I thought you were talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. Uh, you no, know, he wrote a whole paper on the subject of King's Gift uh, based on that one line, there is vile treachery in this axe, uh, which could also be really? translated as uh, uh, there's fraud in the axe or something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, what did uh, what did uh, Andy, not you, have to say? Andy 2.0? Well, he said lots of stuff. <laughs> no, he, he actually, the real impressive part of the paper was what he does exploring uh, kind of blacksmithing techniques mm-hmm. and the archaeology of Viking Age axes. Uh, but his argument has to do with that line from the poem about treachery in the axe. And he believes uh-huh. that Eric deliberately gave Scott Grimm a flawed axe, one that would likely fail him at a critical moment. And I think uh, William oh. Sayers makes a, a similar huh. argument. Interesting. So a literal interpretation of the treachery line. Right, yeah. Or the fraud line, I suppose. Which makes Eric's axe a kind of trap designed to break when Scott Grimm might need it most. That's it, yes. That's the argument. Huh. Interesting theory. I don't think he's alone. I mean, I think you mentioned uh, uh, Sayers Mm -hmm. um, has also made this argument. Of course, there's another way of reading the whole King's Gift section. I mean, the usual, the more usual reading tends to look at the metaphorical significance of the axe, right? It's a a symbol of a king's friendship. Right. Uh, Or specifically, it's Norwegian kings named Blood Axe who get involved with members of Kveldol's family named Thorolf. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, that that's mostly what we discussed in our exchange. Um, if we read it this way, Scott Lagrim is very much in the same position as Kveldulf, right? Right. He isn't impressed right. by the flashy titles and extravagant trappings of these men who call themselves kings of Norway. Uh, mm-hmm. The axe's embellishments are elaborately wrought and expensive, but ultimately worthless when put to more practical purposes. Yes. Just as the axe shatters under the pressure of intense use, so too the king's favor and friendship will prove worthless when put under similar pressure. Exactly. Yeah, a king's promise of friendship isn't really worth all that much when you need it. Right. Uh, it may be pretty. It may draw the eye, enhance the owner's reputation if it's displayed properly. But when tested against the harsh realities of life or the tribulations that come with true friendship, the king's gift of friendship, like this axe, will prove to be brittle and unreliable. Exactly. So before being put to the test, this handsome axe had been placed over Scott Grimm's bed in, I presume, a place of honor. Uh, but after mm-hmm. it failed the test, it was stored away in the rafters of a dirty room out of sight and uncared for. Yeah. I've always read the axe as a symbol of the king's unreliable loyalty, but I mean, you know, as we're rereading this, I keep coming back to the description of the slaughter of the oxen. The axe does manage to cut through the necks of two oxen with sufficient force to come crashing down into the stone slab placed beneath their necks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is also worth considering. You know, we, we've talked about it before ourselves. Uh, it's an impressive feat, right? It, it speaks to both Scott Ligram's strength, but also the quality of the axe. Exactly. I mean, and we shouldn't discount Scott Ligram's strength. I mean, this is a, a blacksmith with a tendency toward berserker ability <laughs> right. to lift superhuman amounts of weight. But either way, the axe works. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in wondering if Scott Ligrim deliberately set the axe up to fail. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm not a lumberjack or a cattle beheader. <laughs> but what typically happens to the sharp edge of an axe if you slam it down with all your strength onto a stone slab? I, I'm also not an expert, but I don't think the axe would be cutting any more heads off after that. Right. Uh, so what did Scott Ligrim expect would happen? I mean, I can't imagine that a stone is a typical thing to leave under the necks of oxen when you're about to slice their heads off. He's a blacksmith. He has to know this, right? This is likely to be the outcome. The axe is still symbolic of the king's friendship to his son. And for that matter, uh, Harold's friendship to Thorol from earlier in the saga. Yeah. But Skullagrim is forcing the symbol and its meaning into a place where it is never meant to go, right? He's using that axe beyond its abilities. Mm -hmm. Perhaps to make a point to Thorolf. Interesting, yeah. And and that reminds me, uh, since you're talking about the, the two oxen, we should we should also mention the two oxen could easily represent the two Thorolfs. The first huh. comes to an untimely end due to his failed relationship with uh, I'm gonna, with I'm gonna follow this. Um you're not gonna I'm not convinced, but I'm gonna follow this logic. In that case, so Scott Lagrim, the second oxen represents that Scott Lagrim expects the same to happen in the next generation. Yeah, again. So, it's a the- so smashing the axe theory. is a nice way of showing Thorolf a potential danger in King's gifts. Quite possibly. That makes some sense, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sure Thorolf takes this lesson to heart, whatever it might mean. Right, uh, he puts it in his heart next to all of his father's proverbs. That's right. He, he I, I <laughs> imagine he wraps the axe up and delivers it back to Eric with a thoughtful poem of his own <laughs> about the nature of friendship. Oh, no, 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 no. As soon as Thorolf boards the ship, or as soon as he's out of sight of land, I should say, <laughs> he tosses the axe overboard into the deep sea, and it is never seen again. <laughs> and with that, he sets <laughs> sail. That's right. Thorolf and Ale are in a Viking warship on their way to Norway. This is about to get interesting. 
And sadly, that is where we're going to leave them for the time being. Are we really stopping there? We're just about to get to the really good part. Yes, I, I said, sadly, that's where we're going to leave them. The sadly part implies that we feel bad about breaking the narrative at that point, but we're going to. Uh, well, that's not really fair. I mean, we're about to get into the heart of the saga. This next section features Ale at his cheeky drunkest. And it's got a hall full of men vomiting all over the floor. Which is Exactly. Yeah. This is charming stuff. <laughs> I mean, for the given value of charming. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to make the listeners wait. It's cruel. Cruel, if you ask me. Cruel? Well, I didn't ask you anyway, so... uh, (laughs) And also, hey, they're not going to be waiting that long. You and I are going to keep talking about this stuff because we've decided to break what we've prepared for tonight into two episodes for some reason. Yeah. Uh, We've (laughs) only managed to get halfway through the stuff we want to talk about. And I think it probably would be best at this point to make this two episodes Instead of one incredibly long one. I think so as well. On the bright side, we'll have it all recorded and ready to go. So if you're listening to this shortly after it came out on hashtag Saga Sunday, then you only have to wait a week. Do you have to pronounce the hashtag? I think that's a, yeah, it's a, okay. if you want to make it a hashtag, you got to pronounce the hashtag. I, I guess that's true, yes. Um, <laughs> and if and if you're listening to this in the future, then just go ahead and binge all you want. It'll be a seamless transition to the next episode. Uh, But be careful not to catch up to us too quickly. We've heard that listeners who catch up to the podcast suffer from binge listening withdrawal. Yeah. uh, Symptoms include a general despair and a subsequent refusal to do lengthy tasks like mowing the lawn and cleaning house. Cleaning house? (laughs) Well, yeah. You you gotta Uh, listen to a podcast while you clean house. There you go. So I'm not cleaning unless I have my podcast. No, for me, it's uh, avoiding long car rides Uh or air travel. And if you find yourself talking to strangers about ambushes on the heath, Bearded men with Thor names and the proper way to handle a gift from a Norwegian king. If you find yourself chuckling at Norwegians in red shirts for reasons only you understand. Well, then you need to seek help. (laughs) All right. That's enough of that. We can keep going. Let's not. But uh, I do actually have something for us to discuss before we wrap up, and it might take a while. Oh, good. What do you have in mind? Well, uh, nothing terribly deep, to be honest with you. Oh, then why bother? <laughs> this is a podcast, Andy, where deep thoughts come to mature and flourish. Is that right? We have no time for your shallow observations. We're about intellectual synergy here at Saga Thing. Uh, what exactly is in your beer, John? Are you okay tonight? Oh, no, I'm fine. You go ahead with your surface-skimming thoughts. <laughs> oh, well, now I wish you, you, you had just keep You just keep skipping stones across the top of your ideas. I, I really wish you hadn't set me up like that. I mean, I didn't build you up at all, so <laughs> that's true. You're only going up from here. There's nowhere to go but up. All right. Uh, okay. So climb up out of that hole, dust yourself off, share what you've brought to the table. Well, this is the first time that we've seen King Eric's wife, Gunhild, in quite a while. Uh, it's true. Um, I don't think she's appeared since the beginning of Njal Saga, has she? That's correct. Uh, which is why I thought it might be fun to do a little retrospective of Gunhild's greatest hits. All right, I like this idea. I mean, sure, it's a bit lighthearted, maybe not terribly sophisticated, uh, but, uh, you know, it's what makes you charming. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a pleasant walk down memory lane, especially for someone like Gunild, the mother of kings. See, that's what I thought. So, as many of you probably know, or knew and then forgot, uh, we've mm-hmm. encountered Gunhild quite, in quite a few sagas already. She was in Cormac's saga, the saga of Halfred Troublesome Poet, Njal's saga, and Floamana's saga. She makes an impression in uh, every appearance. Yes, she does. And that's not all. We are going to see her a few more times when she pops up in Laxdala's saga, mm-hmm. the saga of Horde and the people of home, and then again 
in the saga of Thord Menace. Right, so all you Gunhild fans, you can just hang on to your little Gunhild posters right. and your Gunhild flags. She's not done. No. Yeah. So where do you want to start, John? I think we start with a little history, right? Because we've well, got a uh, lot we, to... Uh... We, we could start with history, but we won't. Uh-huh. We want to finish at okay. some point. And if you get me started on <laughs> Gunhild's parentage, her life and impact on Scandinavian history, well, we'll never finish. Oh, see, this feels like one of those one of those seeds that goes into the ground and someday grows up as a saga reef. <laughs> well, I mean, I could be convinced with the proper watering uh, to get that done. <laughs> maybe if listeners want to hear more about Gunhild's biography, then maybe they'll contact us and let us know. And we'll put something together if there's an interest in that subject. Okay, well, if we're going to block the biography for now, we should, uh, we should at least say she earns the title Mother of Kings. Uh, right at this point, she's quite young, yeah. uh, but she earns a mother of kings when her son, Harold the Grey Cloak, takes the Norwegian throne from King Hauken, who had earlier seized the throne from Eric Bloodaxe. Spoiler alert. I Well, it's going to come up soon enough. Uh, plus, this is very old history. Mm. I mean, we've covered this before. Yeah. Uh, I'll also just add this. The sagas aren't generally kind to Gunild. No, not at all. Uh, she's typically cast in the role of a hypersexed sorceress who controls the men, men around her, whether by a force of personality uh, or sexual appeal. No, oh, she sounds lovely. Well, see, you've fallen under her spell. How can you not, John? Let's go through some... Well, uh, we'll go through these appearances in the order that we covered them in the sagas. Okay. Uh, and that way we can kind of get to know her all over again. All right, that sounds good. So that would take us to the saga of Halfred Troublesome Poet, chapters one and two. And, well... Let me just preface this by saying the first two examples here won't be that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) What have I told you about selling the merchandise? Sorry. Why are we doing this if it's going to be not interesting? Because we want to provide a complete picture of the character as the sagas depict her. It's the kind of exercise that helps give us a sense of like how 13th century Icelandic authors crafted a character, how they drew on oral history or cultural memory and other available sources. So I think there's a lot to be learned from a survey like this. Okay, let's go. Give us the good of Hallfred saga and we'll all try to stay awake. All right. She appears in chapters one and two. And in the first chapter, we learn of a big Viking called Solki. And he's described as a big man and vicious to deal with. He's known for traveling far and wide and on various plundering raids. And then mm-hmm. it says... He was a good friend of the sons of Gunnhild. So the author already, we see, is using Saki's association with Gunnhild's sons as a way of highlighting a bad character. Right. And shortly after all of this is announced, Saki goes on to burn 16 people inside a farm and steals their valuables. Seems like if you burn the farm, the valuables will be inside I don't of it. like but toasting okay. the valuables. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they're in another it's, building, I'm guessing. I don't know. Right, right. Uh, yeah, the outbuilding where they keep all the valuables. Yes, far uh, away from themselves. That doesn't right. seem like a good plan. <laughs> uh, he seems like a charming fella. Uh, now, if I remember correctly, and it's been a while, uh, somebody important escapes that fire, right? That's right, yeah. That's Otar, the father of mm-hmm. Halfred Troublesome Poet. And he goes on to avenge the burning of his family when he manages to kill Soki in Chapter 2. Incidentally, that's one of the first times we see buttocks getting cut off in uh, in Saga thing. Not in the oh, Saga. That is, a, <laughs> that, is a, that is a hallmark moment. Yes, it is. Yeah. And shortly after the killing of Soki, we are told that Gunhild said that Soki's death was a great blow to her. And though she never saw the men who slayed and shamed her friends, she knew exactly who did it. Ah, okay. So there's an example of Gunhild the Sorceress. She's got a kind of clairvoyance, right? 
Um, although it is odd that the saga doesn't follow that moment through. Um, she says, I know who did it. And then Otar goes on and settles in Iceland, mm-hmm. has a family, and nothing much comes of Gunhild's foresight. <laughs> well, she didn't say she was going to do anything about it. She <laughs> just knows. She just knows, yeah. Um, so Otar does have to flee Norway. I mean, it's not like there's no consequences, right? He does have to get away from Gunhild as quickly as possible. Sure, but this saga doesn't make much of her beyond that very general notion that she's a threat. Right. Okay. So what about the next one? Uh, Cormac saga? Cormac is right. Yeah. No, there's not yeah. much in that one. She's only mentioned in a <laughs> yeah, she, she's only mentioned in a period setting opening that uh, happens at the beginning of chapter two. Um, mm-hmm. It says that Ogmund left Norway for Iceland after King Harold died because he did not get along with King Eric and his queen Gunhild. You're right. That's not much. No, it's not much there. <laughs> but if you think about it, it's still interesting. Buried in that one line, that one observation, is the cultural mm-hmm. knowledge that Harold's death and the arrival of Eric prompted a negative change in Norwegian politics. Enough to prompt a man like Ogwin to leave, right? Hmm. The fact that Gunhild is mentioned here specifically in that transitional moment, I think, is quite important also. She's given a place as a shareholder in Norwegian royal power. Yeah, and I, I wonder if it's even uh, so much that their rise indicates a negative change is just this is what happens when you get over kings, right? That um, Harold is not necessarily a positive development for Norwegian politics from the Icelandic point of view. Right. Uh, Gunild essentially becomes that strong figure who people are fleeing from after the death of Harold. Mm-hmm. Right? Eric is not, uh, but Gunhild becomes that figure that people flee from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, and if you look at it through the sagas, I mean, it's pretty rare to see Eric or his children appearing without Gunild. Oh yeah, right? I mean, she really, she really is the kind of the that figure, that central figure. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to see this going forward in Ale Saga. She tends to own the scenes in which she appears. Um, she's often dominating her uh, husband or her children. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, and I think uh, then we see her next in Yalsa. Well, you have a great memory. I don't know how you do that. Uh, well, you already listed it for oh, me about I did, two minutes ago. <laughs> so you remember the one she's in. So I, I made a note to myself. Oh, okay. It isn't that hard to remember these things at that point. Um, and I know she's a uh, she's significant in Nal Saga. Yeah, I so don't. Let's, uh, let's I don't think anyone can forget her role in the first section of Nal Saga. We first meet her in chapter three, where we're told that her son Harold Greycloak was ruling over Norway. Mm-hmm. Now, Gunhild hears about a ship arriving from Iceland, and she accurately predicts that Hrut has come to claim his inheritance. Oh, good old Hrut Haraldsson. That's right. Uh, he's uh, summoned to the king's court by Gunhild herself. And when Gunhild summons you, you better show up. Right. Uh, and while Hrut presents himself to King Harald, it becomes clear very quickly who wears the pants in this court. Yes, that's right. Gunhild does all the talking and de- decision-making. Uh, remember, she takes a liking to Hrut very quickly and mm-hmm. then gets her son to convince Hrut to stay with her for some time before he's actually allowed to join Harold's bodyguard like he wants to. Yeah, that's where all the trouble starts. Uh, Gunhild, uh, for lack of a better term, seduces Hrut. Well, seduces, forces herself on him. What's the difference? Well, the point I was making is that seduces suggests that Hrut in any way requires convincing when, in fact, he seems perfectly happy to spend the winter with her. When he shows up at her house, he's told that he'll be sleeping with her that night. And yeah. he only replies, that's for you to decide. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't hear any complaining complain. there. Although it could be, uh, you know, it's, a, it's still also a power dynamic, right? He, he knows right. better than to refuse her. So right, is he right. actually attracted to her? Uh, probably. Uh, but does he I have mean, a choice should... in the matter? I don't yeah. think so. But we should also be clear to remind uh, listeners that this is after the death of Eric. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's not sleeping with the king's wife. He's sleeping with the king's mother. 
And that's a big difference. That's a big, big uh, difference. <laughs> now, these two get very close during Hrut's time in Norway. Uh, they get so close that Gunnild takes it very poorly when Hrut announces he's, he'll be heading home to Iceland. Mm-hmm. She suspects that he has a woman in Iceland he's longing to return to. Uh, and when she confronts him about it and he denies it, she lays a curse on poor Hrut. Yes. She wraps her arms around his neck, kisses him softly, and then says, If I have as much power over you as I think I have... Then I cast this spell. You will not have sexual pleasure with the woman you plan to marry in Iceland, though you will be able to have your will with other women. Yeah, that that curse doesn't sound that bad at first, uh, but it's pretty serious. Mm -hmm. And um, you would think that she'd cursed him with impotence or some other malady that would keep him from performing at all. Instead, uh, she's only cursing him with his wife, and the curse is that his penis swells up so large that sex becomes impossible. Oh, poor Un. She gets into this marriage and everything could work out really nicely. Right. But here's this guy with this penis that grows so large that well, it we, becomes an untenable situation. Right. And we said uh, before that uh, when we were talking about Njal Saga that uh, this curse may be a kind of joke on the part of the Njal Saga author mm-hmm. because Hrut Helgerson is famous for the number of offspring yeah, that he produces. That's right. Yeah. With all these uh, not other from women. his first marriage, right? Not from the first marriage, yeah. but from subsequent marriages and relationships. Mm-hmm. So that uh, the joke about him being too well endowed uh, might be a kind of a kind of wink at the audience. That's right. Yeah. And and anyways, this is the event that gets Njal Saga rolling. So mm-hmm. thanks a lot, Gunnhild. Njal Saga would be impossible right. without you. Right. And I can make a pretty strong argument. I'm not going to make it here, but a pretty strong argument that that act of cursing Hrut is actually what gets the entire story in line and eventually leads to the downfall of both Gunnar and Njal. I don't, uh, you don't have to convince me. That's exactly what uh, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one more saga appearance left, Floamana Saga. Uh, no, you said that with too much cheer. It's, uh, remember, it's Floamana Saga. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens there? Well, she pops up in chapters 12 and 13 of Floamana Saga. Um, as in other sagas, she appears in the chapter where the protagonist, that's Thorgils, remember him? Mm-hmm. Uh, he first arrives in Norway. Uh, we are told that Harold Greycloak is ruling Norway with his brothers and his mother, Gunnhild, mother of kings. Interesting that this one clearly states that Harold ruled jointly with his mother and brothers. Mm-hmm. And it uses the nickname. Right. So Thorgils lands in Norway and stays with a man called Olaf. And during his stay with Olaf, King Harold and Gunnhild come to visit. Harold is impressed by Thorgils' prowess in the Winter Games, and the two strike up a conversation about just what Thorgils is doing in Norway. And mm-hmm. I think you'll recall this, John. Thorgils is interested in claiming those large estates in Son. Oh, the lands in Son. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was the focus of the first third of the saga before that entire storyline was abandoned. That's right, yes. And as soon as Thorgils brings up the land, he's told that Gunnhild owns estates there. And mm-hmm. that it would be up to her if Thorgils got the land. Boy, Harold really comes off poorly in these things. He just he has got no power right. whatsoever. Although again, I think you know that it's much more about Gunnhild being that central figure. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So when Thorgils then approaches Gunnhild, she suggests that maybe he join the king's followers while she thinks about mm-hmm. it. But Thorgils then explains that he's not really interested in becoming a king's follower, and that's when Gunnhild's villainous nature emerges. She grows angry kicks at him, and then pushes him out of the high seat altogether. And then she tells him that he'll never get his property because he didn't know how to accept an honor. Right, but Harold Greycloak isn't too upset. No. Um, he kind of 
offers Thorgil some money yes, on the he does, side. On the side. And invites him to come visit again, but only when mom's not around. That's exactly right. It's so funny because she's just she just got done beating this guy up and then he's like, oh, come here. She's very grumpy today. Come back when she's sleeping. <laughs> I need a friend. And as the next chapter explains, Thorgil's left shortly after to avoid the, as it says, the injustice of Gunnhild. Mm-hmm. Which begins his adventures, right? That's right. He, he ends up fighting the undead, making a name for himself, traveling all over the place. All over the place. Yeah, he mm-hmm. does. But again, note that Gunnhild serves as our example of the politically powerful femme fatale. Mm-hmm. Her invitation to Thorgil's echoes the scene with Hrut, and I think readers would certainly have been aware of the implications underlying her interest in Thorgil's. Right, and her violent response to being rejected would seem to support that, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And and that brings us, I don't know if sadly or whatever, to the end of our survey of Gunnhild's previous appearances on Saga Thing. As you can see, the authors of these sagas have all adopted a fairly similar approach to her character. She's a powerful, intimidating, sexually charged female with magical powers, and she's prone to jealousy, and, and she's dangerous because of it. Right, uh, and don't forget, a witch. She's a witch, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous combination there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I really do want that saga refund, Gunnild. Like I said, I, I, I'm willing. I'm willing to do it. Uh, it's up to you, listeners. If you think that what we just covered is not the saga brief and you want to hear one, uh, get in touch and tell us to get started. Okay, so uh, is there anything else we need to do before we go? Uh, do you want to do a listener question? Oh, you mean you want to dive into the old listener mailbag? Well, I mean, it's getting late, but we can do one or two. All right, um, let's do one question and one comment. Does that sound all right? Excellent. What's the question? So this one comes from Jon McGlynn via email. He says, I was reading the saga of the people of Vatensdal recently, and I came across something that puzzled me. There is a man named Foxybrand, and he has a horse named Frey Foxy. As my translation of the saga says, many people felt sure that Brand placed special faith in Frey Foxy. So I see this as a reference to Brand's religious conviction, but I could be hmm. wrong. Also... Could this be an indication of either the author of Vatensdala Saga or the author of Hrafenkel Saga being influenced by the other saga? Both were written between 1270 and 1350, so is it possible that one of them was influenced by the other? Is this likely, or am I reading far too much into this? Are those the sorts of parallels that we see as common in the sagas? So, there you go, John. What do you think? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, so, and I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on this character, because it's a character that we really kind of blew past in... Uh, discussing about Zal Saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Foxy Brand is a friend of Yokel Ingemunderson. Um, and he comes through in a pinch when Yokel and his brothers need to travel through terrible weather to get to a duel that they've uh, arranged. Mm-hmm. Uh, that weather is a blizzard, which has been created by a sorceress who is an associate of their enemies, Berg the Dog and Finboy of the Mighty. Ah, that good old Finboy. Uh-huh. Uh, now, the Inga Mundersons manage the trip because Faxibran's uh, sledge, uh, it's pulled by a horse named Frey Faxi, and it's able to cut through the snowstorm when no one else can travel in that weather. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're able to show up for the duel that their enemies cannot attend, and so they sort of win a moral victory there. Uh, so a couple of things. First, there's Bran's name, which means main brand, uh, as in a horse's mane. Right? Ordinarily... I just shrugged it off as a man with a great mullet or something. But in this case, he's also got a horse that can pull a sledge through a magical blizzard. So I feel like there's a story there. Uh, Whether Brand knows some horse magic or whether he's just known for breeding big, strong horses. 
Um, but then there's the fact that the horse's name is Frey Foxy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, it's hard to say whether that's a common name or not. Certainly Foxy as a name element in horse names is absolutely uh, common because it means mane, right? And so blank mane to describe a horse uh, is a very common sort of name part. That's right. Uh, name element. So uh, if Frey Foxy is a common name, I don't know. Uh, now, if it isn't, then as it does in Ravengill Saga, that suggests a devotion to Frey on the part of Brand. But that's never discussed as part of his character, right? That never comes up at any point. Right. Uh, so the other possibility, one possibility is that it's meant to indicate that, but that it's not important to our story. And so it doesn't get delved into any deeper than that. The other possibility is that the Ravenkill's author, if you remember way back in Ravenkill's Saga, Andy, uh, the Ravenkill's Saga author is obsessed with onomastics. Oh, yeah. The whole first right. part of it is just naming things. Exactly. And I think we ended up, we counted it up, and there's something like three times as many place names as people names in that saga, right? It's a crazy amount of place names and things named. Um, and I wonder about the possibility that it is a known name for horses, uh, and that Robinkill's, uh author just uses that name as a way of highlighting a religious conviction on the part of his uh, main character. Okay. But that the name itself is used more widely for horses than Ravenkill Saga would lead you to believe. Right. So just a common name for horses might be Frey Faxi. Right. Exactly. And he's like, why, um, why Frey? Right. I'll invent this um, story. Yeah. And this is just, you know, I know there's a, a thing that's recently gone around explaining this, but I just want to uh, point it out. So, you know, Horses, dogs, like all these animals have names that are very common names. And Foxy is a very common name element for a horse. Um, Andy, do you know where the name Cerberus comes from? Well, I know who Cerberus is. Three-headed dog, right? right? Underworld, sure. all that business. Guardian but, uh, of the Underworld, yep, absolutely. Yep, yep. Um, no, I don't I don't know the uh, the etymology of the, the actual name. I'm assuming you do. Well, I've discussed this in uh, my HEL class once or twice because when we talk about the Indo-European language, you have to have a few hooks to get people to focus. Oh, on boy, that. don't you. Because it can be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. So this is one of them. Um, whenever you think uh, of the name Cerberus, what I want you to remember is that uh, Cerberus's name uh, is the Latin word Cerberus, which is derived from the Greek word Kerberos, uh, which is derived from the Indo-European word Kerberos. Okay. Uh, and so Kerberos to Kerberos to Cerberus. I think they, they sound very similar. They do. Um, Kerberos means spotted. Okay. So uh, what, which means. What you're saying is <laughs> the dog who guards the underworld. Yes. His name. Yes. Is Spot. Yes. <laughs> Well, there, that's and something I'm, to entertain your friends with at a cocktail party. You know? Uh, and now, see, now I'm going to have to come up with a new one, though, because I think it also ma- recently made the rounds on social media. Oh, did that it? Somebody, somebody made a reference to this. Bummer. Now I've got to come up with a new one so that my students won't already know the story. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just a sort of illustrative example of how uh, animal names can be so kind of ingrained that people have been calling dogs, even mythical dogs, spot for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Foxy is another one of those very common name elements. So 
Uh, it's interesting to think about the idea that Freyfaxi might not be an unusual name for a horse, which I hadn't really thought about until now. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, and a nice little tidbit for us about uh, spotted dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hopefully that answers your question, Yon. Uh, now, what was the comment you wanted to share? So, uh, yeah. Uh, do you remember what Ail's grandfather gave him as a reward for the little poem he composed? Remember during that feast that he wasn't supposed to be at? Of course I remember mm-hmm. this. Uh, he gave him three seashells and a duck's egg and didn't tell him how to use the seashells. <laughs> that's Yes, so uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, a bad sci-fi movie reference. <laughs> Starring uh, Sly Stallone. That's why we did that whole thing. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we already did that whole reference. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to go into I that. I know, but it's just, it's just an episode later. I feel like we need to uh, apologize for, for that still. Anyway, so Sigurd the Björkvin Jokelsen contacted us on Facebook to share his interpretation of those gifts based on his own experience growing up on an Icelandic farmstead. So he writes, huh? I thought that you and your listeners might like to know this. When Ail's grandfather gave him the seashells, he was actually giving him livestock for his animal farm. So these are toys. What? Sigurdr grew up uh, playing in a traditional Icelandic game that goes back quite a long way. He says that when he was a kid 30 years ago, they used to play with toys made from horns and bones of livestock and a variety of other things that they could find around. Uh, so horns of sheep were sheep. Horns of rams were rams. Okay. Sheep legs were horses. And he says mm-hmm. they used jaw bones as cows uh, and the teeth kind of looked like udders. So they would, you know, use it that way. Huh. So where he grew up, they also used seashells as pigs, chickens, or just other animals in general. And he even had three seashells that he remembers using as sheepdogs. And he also remembers <laughs> the names that those seashells had as sheepdogs. So there was actually three seashells. That's right. Yeah. So it's just amazing. very convenient. So obviously that that scene evokes a lot of uh, memories for, for Sigurd. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So whenever I hear about an old child, and he goes on to say, whenever I hear about an old child's grave containing a jawbone or some other part of an animal, the first thing that comes to his mind is that someone gave that child toys to take with it into the afterlife. Wow. That's amazing. Really cool, right? That's, I had no idea. No. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful connection. So, uh, yeah. you know, it, but it's also... And it makes perfect sense that, that, that that's what his grandfather is doing. Right? It's great. And it's also a very personal kind of story. So it's based on his experience growing up 30 years ago, you know, on an Icelandic farmstead. So I asked him if this is a widely accepted interpretation of this scene mm-hmm. uh, when Icelanders read uh, Ale Saga. And he said he wasn't quite sure, but he would contact his uncle, who happens to be a medievalist, and maybe ask for a confirmation. Oh. That's convenient. Right? Did the did said uncle respond? He did. And as Sigurd put it, his uncle agreed that the seashells can be viewed as toys for a young Icelander. He said it's almost absolute that that's the case. Um, but he wasn't willing to commit to the theory that it was the same game that Sigurd played when he was growing up with all the different jawbones and horns and things like that. I see. That. Yeah. So it's the same, but it may not be the same. Exactly. It's a, it's a reasonable and very scholarly hedge around the answer. Uh-huh. I like that. I, I like it too. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought of shells as toys without Seager the sharing this experience with us. So now I'll always have that in mind when I think of ALC shells. It's very cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to, it's, you know, it's one thing to imagine young ale sort of treating these as trophies, but it's. Now I'm just trying to imagine young ale playing at farming yeah. with his little seashells. Yeah, the, the thought of what he would get those seashells to do to each other, the kind of violence he would uh, have them commit to each other. Uh, shards of seashells scattered across the floor, right? It's all truly horrifying. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, all right. Uh, so that's got to do it for this episode. Oh, um, we've still got another one to record for you. Do we really? Why did we? Oh, uh, we do. It's going to be great. We've got a wedding, a feast, men who can't hold their liquor, and a shocking death or fear. Ah, well, now you've got me all fired up again. I can't wait. All right. If, uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with us to share their thoughts. Or to encourage us to tackle that uh, good old brief. Sure. So you can reach out to us on social media where we are at Saga Thing Pod on Twitter. And on Facebook, we are Saga Thing Podcast. And he tends to be more active on Twitter, but he checks uh, both accounts pretty regularly. Yes, I do. And we're now on Instagram as well. Uh, so check us For out there reason. at Saga Thing Podcast. You can also reach us via email <laughs> at Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, or if you're feeling industrious, you can uh, stick a note in a seashell. Uh, leave it on the beach, wait for a hermit crab to make its home inside, train it to travel to Oxford, Mississippi, or to Massachusetts. Uh, we look forward to receiving your crustaceous missive anon. <laughs> I doubt it's going to arrive anon. Maybe by the third <laughs> quarter court, though, possibly? Yeah, if we're lucky. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, if you enjoy this podcast and our ridiculous approach to the sagas, please tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more reviews we have, the more it helps other people find the podcast. Excellent. That does it for this time. We'll be back in one week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Uh, with one blow, he chops off the heads of both ax, ox, oxen, axen, axen with the ox. Axen, he's chopping off the axen's head with the axe. Uh, hey, hey, will you go inside and get me that that axe? Hey, get me that axe. I got some axen to kill. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Their uh, heads are on the slab. God, all right. <laughs> I'm just gonna start over. <laughs>